We're in chapter 6, uh, verses 12 through 20. If you're following, it's on page uh, 10 of the outline, and I would encourage you to have the two, uh, they're actually copies of PowerPoint slides I used, but the two copies that I gave you, one last week and the one for this week. Um, let me um, summarize one or two points real quickly, if I could. And I really want to make sure that that this is clear uh, to you, and I'm going to write this on the board one more time. Remember that one of the, and this, uh, granted, this is a philosophical idea, but it is central to understanding the book of 1 Corinthians. The Greco-Roman people and the Corinthians are a part of them, uh, their, their view of things, they're very dualistic. A dualism meant... <coughs> Reality is divided into the material world and the immaterial world. Or if you want to put it the way we're discussing in this chapter, the body, the human body, and the human spirit. Now, I believe that, and so do you. However, they assigned an additional uh, point to this. They assigned a value to it. And they said, this is evil, and this is good. And this is absolutely central to understanding 1 Corinthians, because this is the assumption that the Greco-Roman people of the first century, this is the assumption they had. This is part of their worldview. This is how they looked at things, and this affected how they behaved. This affected the values they had, and this affected how they looked at the human body. And so what we are seeing in this, uh, what we're seeing in this chapter, uh, or actually this part of the chapter, verse 12 through 20, is what, um, what you see here in this first chart, which uh, is the one I gave you last week, that they were making, they, the Corinthians, were making a, an analogy between the food they eat and the sexual relations they're engaged in. They were making an analogy between food and sex. Since God is going to destroy the body, it doesn't matter what I eat, and it doesn't matter what I do with my, my genitals. The sexual dimension of life doesn't matter, because this is evil, and God's going to destroy it. And so I ask you to, and some of you had, depending on your translation, it depends where they put quotation marks, but in verse 12, all things are lawful for me, that should be in quotation marks. That was a Corinthian slogan. And Paul is responding to that. He agrees with it, yes. But I'm not going to, not all things I do are profitable. Yes, I agree, but I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And then, verse 13, food is for the stomach, stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. That's a Corinthian slogan. That gets to the heart of their dualism. God's going to destroy it. It doesn't matter what I do with it. So Paul then begins to answer this. And he says to them, you can't look at your body that way. Your body is eternally significant to God. How do we know that? Because of verse 14. He's going to resurrect it. So you cannot, you cannot buy this view of things. Yes, there is a material world and an immaterial world, but the material world is good. God created it that way. The problem isn't the material world. The problem is sin in the material world. 
The problem isn't your body, I mean your flesh and your bud and all that. The problem is your sin, that your body then becomes an instrument of sin, but your body isn't even. Because it's so important to God, he's going to resurrect it. And you see, we have to be very, very, very careful. Even today, um, now I'll use this as an example, there are so many. I've been in churches where I, I've heard a pastor say, God is only interested in saving the soul. That's not a correct statement. I mean, I know what he means by that. But we know that God is interested in saving the human body as well because he's going to resurrect the human body. And we will live forever, as if this sounds crazy, but it's really true, as a soul-body unit. Our bodies are going to live forever. So the point Paul is making is you can't look at it the way you guys are looking at it. And then second, and I can't remember where we stopped actually, but the second point he develops, and it's that second reason that's at the top of page 10, but he says to them, it's inconceivable that you would take a part of your body which belongs to Jesus Christ and join it with a harlot. He said that is inconceivable that you would do that. And when he uses the word, uh, verse is that in verse 16, when he uses the word join, that particular Greek word there is a very, very important word. It means to, in a covenantal sense, join. Because, and he quotes from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, to become one flesh. When a man joins his body with a woman, they become one flesh. There is a covenantal aspect to that. And so what he's saying to them, it's inconceivable that you would treat sex as something recreational. Sex in the same way you treat food. That when it's just, you feel good about it, you do it, now it's done. He says, that is not how God did that, or that is not really why God created it, and that's not how you should use it. Then, okay, now I think that's kind of where we got in, in our study last week. But he develops one final reason, and that's in verse uh, uh, 18, 19, and 20. But any questions? I'm summarizing what we did last week, but a couple of you weren't here. I want to make sure you're caught up with it. Yeah, Fred. Just on a comment of, uh, like, someone who, these people had uh, come to Christ, and they were Christians, right? Correct. Mm -hmm. they, they young were, believers. He had, yeah, mm -hmm. young, young believers. And if you have a sinner who goes, yeah, you know, I, what's wrong with that? Mm -hmm. It's enjoyable. I mean, God made a body. It's pleasurable. I, mm -hmm. I don't get that. So as Christians, if, if this is an example, we can't be coming down hard on these people to further push them away from perhaps the cross of Christ mm -hmm. by being judgmental and saying, no, you know, that's, that's wrong. Mm -hmm. Rather than uh, understanding perhaps where they're coming from and allowing them to open up maybe more and just be more open with you and discuss where you right. can get to the point maybe of the cross at some point mm -hmm. in time. But, uh, Absolutely, time. yeah. I mean, this, when you, now, now granted, like the, the way people think today may be a little different because I'm not sure most people think this way, even think through something like this, but the, the, the way in which so many people in America today regard sex, they do regard it like food. It's an appetite I have, I satisfy the appetite, I'm satisfied to go on. You, you see what I'm saying? In other words, that 
it's recreational sex, as uh, that's not a biblical concept, but that's very much a 21st century concept, is pervasive in our culture today. They talk, uh, this is very, very widespread on a college campus, you talk about the hookup culture. You hook up with whomever you want. You have a fun night, include you know, drinking and sex, and it's, you've had fun. That's the hookup culture. It pervades everything in America. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I chose to study First Corinthians this year, because these kinds of things that the Apostle Paul is addressing in the first century, it's like he's talking to people on the news yesterday. And he's sharing something. Man, I really understand what you're saying. And what he's trying to do, now, we've, we've said this so many times last year when we were studying Romans, and I keep bringing you up here in our study of Corinthians. You are positionally holy and righteous once you put your faith in Christ. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 14. And the encouragement of the New Testament is live that way. Become what you are. And today, one of the greatest struggles, it's not the only struggle by any stretch, but one of the greatest struggles is a guy or a gal comes to Christ and they've been in a hookup culture. You just don't step away from that. I was with a guy this past week who is addicted. This is his word. I am addicted to sex. I tell you, he's not going to get over that. He's come to faith, but he's not going to get over that. That is going to be a monumental struggle in his life for a bit. Just like a guy who comes out of addiction to alcohol or addiction to some kind of chemical substance or drug. And so what Paul is trying to get them to see is here is your position. It is inconceivable for you anymore that you're going to join your body with the harlot. How can you take something that belongs to Jesus and do that? And so he then fires his final salvo, which is really, really profound. It's so important. Verse 18, he says, flee immorality. Now, I believe this should be in quotes as well. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. I think that's a Corinthian slogan. I think that's something that they said. And he responds... But the immoral man sins against his own body. They, again, following through with how they viewed things and what their worldview is, they're saying there's a special thing about sex, I can do whatever I want, but Paul says an immoral man sins against his own body. Paul, what do you mean? Do you not know? Remember what I told you last week, that phrase, do you not know? What does that mean? He had taught them that. This is a reminder. This isn't the first time he said this to them. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who's within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Why? Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. Now, he, this is the apex of his argument, isn't it? This is the crowning mountain peak of his argument. Part one, the body is so important to God, he's going to resurrect it. Part two, in your new position in Christ, it's inconceivable that you will join something that belongs to Jesus with a harlot. But third point, your body's the temple of the Spirit, and it no longer belongs to you. Jesus has bought it. What was the price he paid to buy your, to purchase you? 
is shed blood, the cross, Calvary. You see, um, this whole approach that the New Testament takes, and it's in Paul, it's in Hebrews, this whole approach that the New Testament takes is become what you are. You don't belong to yourself anymore. You have a new owner, so to speak. It's Jesus. And the temple dwell, your body is now the temple, the indwelling of the spirit, which is, that is just a, um, that's one of those thoughts, that's one of those ideas that you've got to connect all of the stuff in the Old Testament and all of the stuff in the future with this. We, do you, do you follow what he's saying? We are the new temple of God. And the word for temple there is naos in Greek. It's the inner sanctuary. Not that this is always important, but it's kind of a neat, a neat twist on the word he's using. The word for temple there is naos in Greek. That's the inner sanctuary. That's the holy of holies. You are the holy of holies of God now. You see, I mean, isn't that? It's, a, it's connecting stuff that's in the Old Testament with the teaching of the New Testament, and that this, the whole new order of things, which you've heard me talk about before, and the mark of the new order, as, the circ- as circumcision was the mark of the Abrahamic covenant, the Holy Spirit is the mark of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit indwelling in us. What God promised in Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 is fulfilled. And Paul adds this new. Um, I don't know if I want to say twist, but this new insight that as the, as our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit, there is an additional thought with that. We don't; it doesn't belong to us anymore. It belongs to Jesus. He bought He bought us. He per, He paid the price for us. The, the, the another word for that that's used in the New Testament is He redeemed us. He purchased us. So we don't belong to ourselves anymore. And therefore, and I know a couple of you have questions, let me finish this one thought. Therefore, the only acceptable response to the truth of verse 12 through 19 is glorify God with your body. Let your body be an instrument of glorifying and bringing honor to God. As he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, we'll get to that at the rate we're going, probably about March chapter 31, verse 31 of chapter 10. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So we now have a whole new perspective. And so what Paul is trying to do is get these Corinthians who are living in a cesspool just like you and I live in a cesspool to see things differently than everybody around you because you have been bought with a price. You've appropriated that by faith. Now start living what you are. Uh, Woody, you had your hand up. Woody. Hey, uh, uh, well, you know, I missed last week, and I'm not all that bright anyway. <clears throat> but uh, when we were talking about resurrect, you know, uh, I guess in my mind I felt like uh, parallel with death and the spirit going to heaven. But I'm a little confused now when you talk about the body 
it's resurrected also. Mm -hmm. I, I don't I don't know what you mean there. Is that uh, Oh, of course, absolutely. That, okay, I'm looking at you across the table. You always sit in a position of authority where you deserve to sit. <laughs> now, when I look at Woody, uh, what, the, what the scriptures say and God's perspective is Woody is not just the body I see, but also the immaterial soul or spirit. I mean, there's some debate about that, but I don't want to get into that. There's a material Woody and there's an immaterial Woody. Follow me? It's your soul and your body. Now, death, according to the scriptures, is the separation of the body and the soul, of the body and the spirit, okay? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So your soul goes to be with the Lord Jesus. When he comes back, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he comes back for us, he, there's a shout, there's a trumpet, the dead in Christ rise, and we who are alive uh, go to be with him forever. And the resurrection occurs. In other words... If you and I die tomorrow and our bodies go into the grave, according to 1 Thess 4, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to come back from heaven. There's going to be a shout, there's going to be a trumpet, voice of the archangel, and you and I are going to, our bodies are going to come out of the ground, be reconstituted and done with our spirit. And then the last part of that verse, and forever we shall live with the Lord. And forever we shall live with the Lord. So the, the, that's an elaboration of what's in verse, what verse is that? Verse 14 that the doctrine or the teaching or the fact of the literal bodily resurrection is why you and I must see our bodies as eternally significant to God. You, in other words, the well, only thing God's interested in is my soul. That's what this is. That's a dualism, and that's not true. God is interested in you, body and soul. And I know that for a fact, and maybe because the scriptures teach that, but because of the resurrection. And that is, that's why the Bible speaks so much uh, in Isaiah 65, Revelation 21 and 22, of the new heaven and new earth that we're going to populate. That's a, a totally new concept to me, mm. you know, because of my ignorance of, of, of the Bible. Well, it, you, you've now filled in one of those gaps of ignorance, and now you, the enlightenment has occurred. But it is that, see, and another part of the teaching of Scripture is that that fact of the literal bodily resurrection should motivate us. And that's what he's saying here. It should motivate you. It matters what you do with your body. Your body's important to God. And see, that's, when you really start to understand that, you see that is one of the major, major marking point differences between biblical Christianity and almost every other faith, every other world religion. Hinduism says the body isn't important. Buddhism said the body is important. Uh, the Confucianism is a, more of an ethical system than a religion. You discipline your body to achieve a higher end. Dual, I mean, it's just on and on and on. But biblical Christianity says what God creates is good. The challenge is that humans are in rebellion against him, and he has cursed it, but he's going to remove that curse because of Jesus. And therefore, he makes the promise to us that we will live forever as a soul-body unit. You, totally, you, body and spirit, will live forever. And that's, that's quite a neat concept, actually. Randy Alcorn has written a wonderful book called Heaven, in which he really talks more about new heaven and new earth, and he 
he speculates from a lot of stuff in scripture about what the new heaven and new earth is going to be like as we populate the new heaven and new earth. What book is that? It's called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. A-L-C-O-R-N. But it's the last third of the book which is, is fun because he asks a whole bunch of questions. Like, will we drink coffee in the new heaven and new earth? Literally, that is one of the, that is one of the chapters. Jim was all over that. Will, yeah, well, <laughs> one of my students gave me, uh, we had, there's a long story to that. But anyway, one of my students gave me a little thing, and it was in my mailbox. Will we drink, there was a little carrot, Starbucks coffee. But is it Andy what? Alcorn. A-L-C-O-R-N. It's kind of a it's a it's a thick book. I mean, it's it's about 450 pages. But the first part's a lot of doctrine. You may want to skim through that. The second part is the the truth of it, what it summarized. And then the third part is the practical implications of it. You know, I'm getting to an age where I need to probably be learning about this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> surgery next week. You know, so <laughs> when you sit and you can read, my friend. For me? You're going to be sitting, you can read. Really? Yeah, yes. oh. you're right. Okay, there are a couple questions, Daryl. The can sometimes say, yes, my body is, is the temple of the Holy Spirit. But whenever I die, I'll be in the presence of the Lord. So what I do with my body is what? My question is, should your comments, not, not your comments, this, this biblical teaching impact me as a believer with regards to whether I choose to be buried bodily or cremated. Didn't somebody ask that yes. question last yeah. week? Somebody else asked that question last week. Yeah. Uh, Watch his reaction. It's really funny. And he loves. He doesn't want I think I dismissed class early last week. <laughs> Uh, I answer it in this way, Daryl. Um, first of all, there is, there is nothing in the Bible that commands us not to choose cremation. Do you know what I mean? It doesn't say don't be cremated or whatever. Um, however, all over the scriptures, whether you're in the Old Testament or like in passages here that we're looking at, the, the, the teaching of the scriptures seem to be you treat your body with dignity and respect and honor. Which is one of the reasons why, until very recently, uh, the typical church had a cemetery out the back or along the side or, or whatever. And uh, it was just a part of everything that was in the ethos of Christianity. You honored the graves, you honored the, uh, the, the person who's died by taking flowers to the grave, caring for. I mean, it's just a way of showing dignity. And so it doesn't mean cremation, you cannot do that, because whatever is going to occur at the resurrection, God's going to reconstitute the molecules and and so on, because he says he's going to do that. The only other thing that we do know from Scripture is that whenever the body, let me rephrase that, whenever the burning of the body is commented upon in Scripture, it's always in the context of pagan worship. You know, like uh, um, King Manasseh of Judah burning his two children in the Valley of Hinnom. That's, that's a pagan, worshipful, horrendous act. It's never positively dealt with. So, I mean, I think there is, I really do, and I mean this very seriously, there is 
freedom for us as Christians in, in that area. Uh, I do not see cremation condemned in Scripture. There's no clear teaching against it. But I think that's one of those areas, like all areas in Christian liberty, what you are comfortable with in terms of your conscience. That's what you follow. Because to go against conscience is to, to sin, as James said. My wife and I have chosen uh, to be, you know, to, we bought the burial plots. We even, we, we even bought the, the stone, the, uh, what do you call this thing? The tombstone. And uh, our kids, we, we showed them a picture of it. Because one of the reasons we did that is we, wanted, we didn't want them to have to deal with us. Because my son and his wife live in England. I mean, it just it would be very difficult when Peggy and I go to be with the Lord. So we, my, both the kids said, oh, don't talk about that now. I mean, it was just, you know, it was really, and it was understandable. In one sense, it was good. They don't want us to die. They'd like to hang around a little longer. <laughs> but it was, it's just preparing for that is, is a choice you have to make. And I think there's freedom there, um, but we made that choice to, to be buried, not cremated. And you have, you know, today you have another choice, uh, the mausoleums, where you can have your body buried above ground in a chamber, and there's just lots of options. Somebody else had a hand. I think I saw it on my left eye. No? I have a, I have a question, like, <clears throat> or just, just a comment, I think, too, uh, among Christians here. Wasn't it St. Augustine who, who was a believer in everything? And uh, then he was living with, uh, and correct me, because yeah, I'm not positive on this, living his great theologian past, <clears throat> living with a woman. Yes, he was. was, was before he came to Christ. Oh, it's before. Before then, he came to Christ. And then after, wasn't, wasn't he there for some time in his life or not and realized that this too needed to be in conformity with, mm -hmm. with scriptures and teaching. But he was in a time in that relationship as a believer and as a devout believer where he he didn't quite understand that fully or how did that work? Uh, I, I, was wondering I don't think I don't think so. He okay. before he came to faith in Christ, Augustine was a very immoral man. He had even sired an illegitimate child, which he that took care of the rest of his life. But uh, once he made that decision, Fred, of faith, he, he ended that life of immorality. Uh, but he did. He had, uh, he was, a, well, there's another say, he was a very immoral man. But um, there's a great, uh, if you, you want to read a really, really fantastic spiritual autobiography, it's Augustine's Confessions. It's one of the greatest spiritual autobiographies. I encourage my students to read it. They have to do several analytical papers, and, and about half of them choose to do it on Augustine. It's like you're reading something that you were reading yesterday in the newspaper. And how Christ changed this man. I mean, it's one of the most phenomenal. But he talks about things in his life when he was a younger boy. He stole pears. He talks about that. Why did I steal pears? I wasn't hungry. It was just the thrill of stealing something. The thrill of doing something like that and getting away with it. And he says that was one of the greatest evidences of sin in my life. A little... It's, it's called Confessions. It's, it's a longer title, but Confessions is the key term. And the author's name is the great... Uh, Fifth-century theologian Augustine. 
Some people pronounce it Augustine, but I studied under people who pronounce it Augustine, so I just pronounce it that way. But anyway, it's, it's really, um, he's probably the greatest theologian of the first thousand years of the church. He born in the mid-300s, died about 420 or so. Oh, I know, I was going to tell you. He, he uh, came to faith in Milan. He was teaching up there. But anyway, uh, then he went back to North Africa where he was born. And about 12 years later, he goes back to Milan and he sees one of the women. He, he writes about this in the autobiography. He saw one of the women that he had had uh, a number of uh, uh, one-night stands, which was more than one night, but a number of situations like that. And she saw him. And she starts running toward him. He's in the marketplace of Milan. And as he sees her, he does exactly what Paul says in verse 18. He flees in morality. He turned and ran the other way. And she is yelling at him, Augustine, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine doesn't stop. He keeps moving. Yes, but it is no longer I. Isn't that a great answer? Galatians 2.20. It's no longer I. And it's just that that magnifies the the change that occurred in that man. So yes, before he came to faith, he was a very immoral man, but not after he came to faith. Tremendous, incredible change in the guy's life. And he's just, he's incredibly brilliant. He still, he wrote what is still probably the best defense of the Trinity ever written. It's a magnificent. All right, now I, uh, good question. Anything else? I mean, this is good. This is applicational stuff that's, Really important. That idea, that idea of the the temple, that that ah, the inner sanctuary of God. I, that's one of those things. I one of those truths. I encourage you, and and I know I don't know how you think about or do things like that, but I encourage you to really just meditate on it for a little bit. What does that mean? Now that I've put my faith in Jesus Christ, I am the new naas of God, the new temple, the inner sanctuary of God. You can see the old temple's gone. I'm going to be in Jerusalem in two weeks, and I'll see Temple Mount. It's not there. There's a dome of the rock, but Temple isn't there. But I always teach the people when we're there, you, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are the new temple. What does that mean? Remember, one of the things about the old temple in Jerusalem was that was to be the manifestation of the glory of God. Ezekiel tells us the three-step procedure by which the glory of God was removed from Jerusalem because of the sin of Judah. But it's, what's profound is that you and I now are the channel, the means, uh, the evidence, what's another way of saying it, of God's glory being manifested. We are to manifest. We are to reflect. We are to show. We are to evidence the glory of God. And the greatest evidence of that is the changed life. What no one else can do, God does. God transforms and changes. And Paul is saying, and again, the truth is, you are the temple of God. You've been bought with a price. Past tense. Now, live that way. Become what you are and so because all of these truths verse 12 through 20 are accurate therefore glorify God with your bodies I mean it's just I, 
I just encourage you, I don't know how else to say it, just meditate and reflect on that. That is how important to God you are. Every one of you around this table. You put your faith in Christ, you're his temple. He's taken up residence in you, so to speak, through his spirit. I mean, that's just, wow, that's kind of an important, but that should motivate us then um, in how we live. Okay? <laughs> Look at this next. Look at this last sheet that I just gave you. I'm continuing the parallelism, but the ownership, that's the theme here, the ownership that's reflected in the resurrection. I'm summarizing what's in 13 and 14. Now, the ownership was reflected in the cross on 19b and 20. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Glorify God with your body. We don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to the Lord. That must affect how we live. That's what Paul is doing. And he is turning upside down this whole idea that was part of the Greco-Roman world. And uh, it just, it was revolutionary. And it did. I mean, the Greco-Roman world didn't last. The church did. So, all right, any final thoughts or questions? Because we're going to transition to chapter 7 now. Joe, would you take one pass along? Let me introduce, and we're really shifting now. You, you, <laughs> you got 15 minutes. You paid for those, so we're going to do every one of them. So just hang in there. But I want to introduce chapter 7 in a couple of different ways. Um, chapter 7 is the final part of the book, and that goes through the end of the book. So it's going to be a long uh, last half. But chapter 7, uh, just to keep the alliteration, divisions, disorders, difficulties, there are a series of difficulties that are in the Church of Corinth, but that were raised by them. Now, do you notice if you, in your Bible, and I'm pretty sure this is accurate for all the translations, the very first phrase of chapter 7, verse 1, is now concerning. Do you have that? Something close to that in your Bible? Okay, now that's, that's a very, very important marker. Because you're going to see that it keeps coming up throughout the rest of the book. You're going to see it in the middle of chapter 7. You're going to see it at the beginning of chapter 8. You're going to see it in chapter 10. You're going to see it in chapter 11. You're going to see it in chapter 12. You're going to see it in chapter 15, something, 1, and then 16, 1. I think I've got all those correct. Now, this is what we're pretty certain is going on here. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, Paul received from the Corinthians a series of questions. Chapter 16 tells us uh, that three men came to visit Paul in Ephesus, and they gave him these questions. So he's responding to them. So this is the challenge we have, guys. We have the answer. We don't have the question. It's like Jeopardy. 
You answer, you, you have the answer, but you have to make up the question. Do you ever watch Jeopardy? You know what I'm talking about? It's like Jeopardy. So we have the answer that Paul's giving. So from his answer, we have to discern what the question was. And so what I've done on this sheet is I've tried to surface what are the questions. And there are a whole series of questions in chapter 7 that they ask him about marriage, about sexuality, about engaged couples, about widows. And so this sheet is what we're going to kind of follow. Now, the outline which you have starting on 10 and, and all uh, going on the next couple of pages reflects an outline point, but here's the question that's in each outline point. So now have I lost you or are you with me? So he's, he's answering something and apparently question number one, which is verse one through seven, is his answer. The question must have been something like this. Paul, now that we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, how about sex in marriage? Shouldn't we be celibate? Some of the teachers of the very, very early church were saying sex is original sin. No more sex. The dualistic idea, you can go to the other extreme. They were saying, well, the body is so evil that now you've come to Christ, you have to master with your spirit the evil body. So you denied all the good things of life, because that's all evil. So Paul comes back, and he comes back pretty hard. That is absolutely false. So I use chapter 7 a lot when I do premarital counseling, and I, to some extent uh, I don't do much of that anymore. I'm not a therapist, so it's all pastoral stuff that I've ever done. But anyway, I use this as a very, very healthy perspective on sexuality in marriage. And so I want to read it. I'm going to read verse uh, 1 through 7. I'm going to read the entire passage, because we're not going to go get all of it done today, that's for sure. But I want you to see how he begins to present this. And it's absolutely revolutionary for the first century. No one was talking like this. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, again, I think most of your translations are going to have this statement in quotation marks. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That should have quotation marks around it. That was one of their slogans. That was one of their beliefs flowing out of their crazy dualism. But because of immoralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. Verse 3, let each man fulfill his duty to his wife, likewise the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Stop depriving one another. Now, the, 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 the verb in verse 2, have, is a euphemism for sex. Let each man have intimate sexual relations with his wife. Now, I want you to notice something. And let each woman have sexual relations with her husband. Verse 3, let the husband fulfill his duties to his wife, the wife to her husband. Verse 4, the wife does not have authority over her body, the husband does not have... She, you have mutuality here. You have total equality in marriage here. 
This, this shocks the socks off of the radical feminist who says Paul is a rabbinic patriarch, all he cares about is man. That's not true. Paul is saying in the, on the bed of marriage there's total sexual equality. It is not just for the man. It is for both. And I'm telling you guys, you do not realize how radical this was. No rabbi was saying that in the Jew, in first century Judaism. And the Greco-Roman world was very patriarchal. And I mean, the, the sexual stuff, and we, we still see that today. It's, it was just amazing. He's saying there's total mutuality, reciprocity, and equality in the marriage bed. That's really, really quite profound. Jim, what were the rabbis saying? Well, what, a very patriarchal view. Women are not to be seen. Women have no role. And all they're just good at having babies. I mean, I'm, that's a horrible summarization. But Now, what I've done, and this is, this is how I uh, teach this, so let me lay this out, and we'll really develop it next week. In verse 2, 3, and 4, I three, see three principles of sexuality here in marriage. Principle number one is the principle of mutual rights. Verse three, the principle of mutual duty. Verse four, the principle of mutual authority. Let's take those apart. Now, do you understand? Let me make sure you understand. I'll go through this again. Verse two is the principle of mutual right. Verse three, the principle of mutual duty. Verse four, the principle of mutual authority. Do you understand why I'm using mutual? It's both. And Paul goes out of his way to make that clear. Every verse, he talks about the man, he talks about the woman, he talks about the wife, he talks about the husband. He does not only talk about the husband. And now, men, that is so radical for the first century. In my view, it's still radical for today. It's even radical for evangelicals. I have preached this from the pulpit. Did you ever hear a pastor preach from the pulpit on sex? Now, I was never asked back to that church. I'm serious. I, I, I told him what I was, because I knew what was going on in the church, and I said, I'm going to preach on the first seven verses of, of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians. Sounds good. Good. Come. They didn't know what they were saying. I mean, they really didn't, the guy who called me. And I did. I was very explicit. No, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't in any way, uh, you know, uh, explicit. I was just laying out these principles. Because this is really, really, it's important for our teens to hear this. It's important for our young people to hear that. But this is all in the framework of the sanctity of covenant marriage. This isn't the hookup culture. This is marriage. But mutual rights. Because in moralities, let each man have his own wife, let each woman have her own husband. In the in first century Corinth, it was a horrible sexual cesspool out there. And God has created the, the beauty of marriage as the protection against that immoral cesspool. That's why it's there. And in the marriage bed, there's mutual and reciprocal and equal rights. That's what verse 2 is teaching. Mutual, equal, and reciprocal rights. You never use sex as a weapon. 
You never use sex to manipulate and coerce. You never use sex to get what you want regardless of what your spouse. No. There is an equality, a reciprocity, and a mutuality to the marriage bed. And that's what Paul's teaching. Do not, do not buy this idea that spirituality means celibacy. Which is, I, I always struggle with how, how anybody sees that in the Bible. That spirituality, do you understand what I mean by that? That spirituality equals celibacy. That is not taught in Scripture. Now, as you're going to see in verse 7, there is such a thing as a spiritual gift of celibacy. But how do you know if you don't have the gift? If you struggle with lust, you don't have the gift. He's very blunt. If lust is a problem with you, you don't have the gift, so he says, get married. <laughs> I mean, that's what he says. It's just, he's really very clear and very categorical. Because he's trying to correct something. Because what, and this, this happens in the history of the human race. We swing from one pendul- side of the pendulum to the other. One side is libertinism, you know, do whatever you want in sex. The other sw- is you, you swing then celibacy. That spirituality means I don't have anything to do. And Paul says, no. <laughs> no, the marriage bed, if you are married, is precious and sacred. And, and, and the book of Hebrews says the same thing. And on the marriage bed, there's total equality, reciprocity, and mutuality. Equal sharing of the rights in the marriage bed. And then he says, that each husband feels the principle of mutual duty. There's a, there's a mutual obligation, a mutual duty there. I always tell the kid, well, a lot of the premarital counseling I've done, and I, my children, I'm privilege of doing that with them too, but I say to them that uh, once you say I do, you now have a duty and obligation to your spouse. And a headache, when you say, I have a headache, sorry. You know, I mean, I'm, that's always a humorous thing. But it's, it isn't just about me anymore. Because what is, what is the, the Bible saying in uh, Genesis 2.24? Uh, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they become one. Actually, the verb tense changes there. It's correctly translated. They will now be in the process of becoming one flesh. So it begins a process. The sexual act is the joining of the two bodies, but that's, that's only a part of becoming one flesh. But you know where there were two, there's now one. Now the, the amazing thing about marriage is you still have the two codal identities, male, female, all the idiosyncrasies, and right brain, left brain, excuse me, emotional, all that stuff. But now you're together, and you're much stronger together than if you were apart. That's what the Bible says. <clears throat> And so Paul is saying, in this dimension of the marriage, there is now mutual duty and mutual obligation. And it's, you, can't, you can't look at it as a weapon. You can't look at it as a manipulative technique. You can, nothing like that. There's a mutuality that now leads to, it's like an ethical duty. It is right for me to do this. We are going to get through this. In verse 4, yes, Joel. Well, I mean, just based on what you said earlier about pendulum swinging and how people, yeah. I mean, this seems like a verse that's just ripe for 
husbands to abuse mm. and, and make, make, I mean, make this, you know, to their wives, like, well, this is your duty mm. to me or for me or whatever. Uh, how do you? Well, you're not reading all the scripture. How would you address that? Well, I think, I think one of the key ways to address that, Joel, is that in Ephesians 5, you love your wife as Christ loved the church. You love your wife as you love yourself. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we'll study in the future, all those descriptions of the agape love, it is no longer about me, it is about you. I serve you. And so a coercive, abusive, manipulative use of sex is absolutely forbidden, forbidden, forbidden in verse 2, verse 3, and verse 4. You can prostitute it in anything. Sure. But this is in the context of everything else the scripture says about how a husband relates to, loves, cares for, serves his wife. He will never, he will never use her as a punching bag. He will never emotionally or verbally abuse her. Why? Because he wouldn't do that to himself and he would never do that to Jesus. I mean, that's, I've, I've taught it that way. I yeah. think that's exactly how we are to understand this. I mean, it just, like I said, seems like... You're right. Well, you, 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 right. well all you have to do is take verse 3 and just yeah. yank it out and yeah. just take, put it on a little slogan. Yeah. Well, they do that in Ephesians, too. Yeah, well, yeah. So I mean, it's... Five, but <clears throat> verse four of that. Well, and it's so even how, it's even how you teach the, or even how you yeah. look at the issue of submission. Now, I'm, it's, it's uh, about 12. Uh, I think I better stop because I will not get verse 4 done. Because the, the issue of authority is extremely important. It extends way beyond so many different aspects of this. But this is, a, at least I think it is, this is a very refreshing part of God's work. You just see the balance and the beauty and the way God created man and woman and, and how he sees the ideal in marriage, and it's just—it's really, it's really quite thrilling, exciting, and profound. Well, I think when you talk about the process of becoming one, it's interesting because if you're around people who have been married a long time, or yourself have been married a long time, usually those people are very different from one another. And if you're mature and you stay in this marriage over the years, you see us pick up traits from our spouse, and we get a lot more balanced. That's been my experience. Yeah. Yeah. You, oh yeah. You know, if you were if you were you know, we were real driven and they were real calm, you tend to find over time we pick up some of that The greatest the greatest gift to me yeah. next to Jesus was Peggy. Yeah. She keeps me balanced, keeps yeah. she really is. Oh my goodness. Absolutely. Knows, every one of the guys around the table, I'm sure you could say Lord, the same. Lord knows you, you need it. Oh I know that for I believe me. No <laughs> doubt about that. I absolutely <laughs> Really? It. Yeah. No, yeah, absolutely. The man's pouring like, his heart out here. You go like, after like that? Like we all. Like we all. Listen. We're sorry, Jim. <laughs> no, it's all right. I'm really used to it with Fred. <laughs> Let me pray here. We, we really got to get in. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the teaching of Paul today in that last part of chapter 6. Uh, a very biblically God-centered view of the body. It's so important to you. You're going to resurrect it. It's so important that we see our bodies as now the temple of the Spirit of God. We no longer belong to ourselves. Therefore, it matters what we do with it. 
and most importantly, the transition to uh, these uh, very important introductory verses about how we view the sexual dimension, the intimacy of marriage. Uh, Paul has some refreshing and balanced thoughts on that. It is certainly clear from these verses that it is both for the man and the woman, and it just absolutely does away with any thoughts of physical, emotional abuse, manipulative, coercive, using it to get what you want. It's for both the man and the woman, the husband and the wife. So although we have a lot more we want to say about this, and a lot more Paul has to say to us, even in those first seven verses. Bless these men. We all live in a culture which is antithetical to most everything we've studied today, in the totally going totally the opposite direction. But that's why you've left us here. We put our faith in you. We're now your salt. We're your light. We represent you. Help us in our uh, relationships and all the different things that are part of our lives, our marriages, in the workplace, Lord, to represent you well. Give us that enablement and that strength to do that to your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week.